I have a habit of reading the Bible too quickly. I'm not sure if you can sympathize with that or if you do the same thing. Whenever I open up the Word of God, I turn to a passage, usually beginning in Proverbs, to kind of just get a lesson for that moment and then move on to a daily reading. I just have the problem of just picking up the text and going through it too quickly. But when I read through it too quickly, I remind myself eventually to go back and reread what I just read, but do it more slowly, taking my time allowing the words to actually impact what my mind is thinking and and feeling. And whenever I go back and take my time, that second or third time that I'm reading a text, certain words, certain phrases just pop out to me like like they did not do in the first or second time that I read it. And I would encourage you, if you have that same habit, if you have that same problem, when you go back and you read it more slowly, try to notice key phrases or statements that are in the text that remind you of other passages of Scripture. One of my favorite things to do when it comes to my own personal Bible study is to focus on those phrases and try to connect some dots that I've never connected before. If you see a passage over in this particular book that has a phrase that reminds you of something else, Do a quick search for that phrase and see what else has that phrase within it. And for this morning, what I want to do is do that very exercise with you, going through four different passages, so not three, like every good gospel sermon has three points, and they're all alliterated. We have four. There's no alliteration at all, so marks off for me. Let's look at the phrase, for I know. There are at least four, if not more, phrases in Scripture that have that phrase, for I know, within the actual verse. I want to examine a couple of those together and see what they look like when they're all meshed together as one main thought for our sermon today. We begin in likely the first book that was ever penned in our Bible, the book of Job. Job chapter 19. Let's turn there together. I think I've referenced Job more than any other book since I've been here in the past almost year, but it's a very important book. Here, what we have in the book of Job is a man seen from our perspective, and then God seen from his perspective, and we see a great drama unfold in which we find mankind's search for meaning. He wants to know what he has done in God's eyes to deserve all the pain and torment that he has gone through. He tries to reason with himself, with his wife, and just one simple verse, and then with some so-called friends that are no doubt influenced by the thoughts of Satan himself, the great adversary. But in Job chapter 19, we're getting towards the end of this drama. Beginning in verse 21, Job says this, Have mercy on me, have mercy on on me, O you my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. Why do you, like God, pursue me? Why are you not satisfied with my flesh? Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. The irony's not lost on us that we're reading a book. So, in the moment, he felt that way. 
Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they may be engraved in the rock forever. And here's our statement for this morning. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, and my flesh I shall see God, whom I see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. Right in the middle of this great cry of anguish, wishing that his friends would stop relentlessly saying that he was guilty of some great sin, and that's why he was suffering such a great calamity in his life. He says, I wish that this could be written down, that future generations could look back at my pain and my torment and my anguish and know what I've gone through. And then he concludes that thought with, I know that my Redeemer lives. Someone is there to buy me out of this calamity, this great torment. That word redeemer from the Hebrew literally means a vindicator or a protector. Someone standing in his corner is the meaning of that. He also references in Job chapter 9 and verse 33 the problem that he has trying to wrestle with the idea of the meaning of his pain by saying, Job 9.33, There is no mediator between us, meaning him and God, who may lay his hand on us both. There's no one that can, is a go-between, between my pain here on earth and God who is in heaven. He also says in Job chapter 16 and verse 21, Oh, that one might plead for, with God as a man pleads with his neighbor. He wants to communicate to God like he would another human being he has an issue with. He wants someone to stand in his corner, to vindicate him, to redeem him, to protect him. That's what he knew would take place in the future. Ultimately, we know that there is a mediator between us and God. Over in the book of 1 Timothy chapter 2, Verse 5, Paul writes these words to the young preacher Timothy, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Job, a patriarch, the first book likely ever written of the Hebrew Bible, wrestled with the idea of how he could better have a relationship with the creator of the universe have access to his throne, and communicate his issues, his problems, his needs, his desires, his wants to the Creator. That's the very first statement in which we find, for I know, referenced in Scripture. And now we know that there is a mediator between us and God on his throne, the man, Christ Jesus. The next phrase we'll talk about that has the the statement, for I know in it, is a verse that likely many of you have heard before. It's in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 29, verse, no one knows it, verse 11, someone knew it. <laughs> this is a verse that we've talked about a good deal. The verse simply states, for I know the thoughts or the plans that I think towards you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. 
I remember distinctly we were having a graduation party in Charleston, and we were looking for verses to inspire that graduating class to go and seize the future and be proud of their accomplishment for graduating high school and college and to look forward to the future. I think absolutely everyone said Jeremiah 29, 11. It's a good verse if you just look at that one verse. However, it's not just that one verse in that chapter. If you read the context, it's a very Debbie Downer chapter. That's the one highlight of that chapter is verse 11. If you look at the context here, let's jump back into the book of Jeremiah, chapter 29, beginning in verse 10. Here's why it's a Debbie Downer. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. And we've learned this morning in the book of Amos, God visiting you is not always a good thing, right? I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Then, verse 11, in the proper context, because I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope, uh, a hope. verse 12, I will call, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. This is the plan of redemption for the nation of Israel. They are carried away to Babylon, and they are in Babylon when Jeremiah is writing unto them. He's saying, 70 years are going to pass. I will come visit you and bring you back home, and we're going to restore our covenant, restore our relationship. But Jeremiah 29, 11 says, For I know the thoughts that I think towards you. I know what your future holds is the idea. Israel was going through a period of correction, chastening to allow them to learn the lesson that idolatry was not going to be tolerated in the nation of Israel anymore. Over in Proverbs chapter 3, beginning in verse 11, Solomon wrote these words by inspiration. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction, because whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as a father, the son in whom he delights. God knows, as our Heavenly Father, that we are people who make mistakes. And there are lessons that we will learn through our experiences that will give fruit to wisdom for us to pass on to those around us and the next generation. And so Israel was learning that lesson while in captivity to Babylon. Idolatry was not going to be tolerated anymore. But God knew the plans for Israel was to take that remnant, bring them back home, and prepare the way for the Messiah. Over in the book of James, chapter 1, verse 17, probably one of my favorite verses of all time, James writes these words, Every good and perfect gift is from above. It comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow because of change. If you have a blessing or a good thing in your life, there is no doubt about it, God gave you that blessing, that good thing in your life. And as Jeremiah 29, 11 states, I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Job began the conversation by saying, I know that there is a redeemer. Someone that's a go-between for me and the Creator God. 
Jeremiah says God knows not just who we are, it's in our corner, but he knows the plans that he has laid out for his special people. And then we go to our old friend, Jonah. If you're in our Sunday morning Bible class, Jonah's a character with which we wrestled for four whole chapters. And in Jonah chapter 4, there is a surprising statement from the lips of a prophet of God who eventually got to where God wanted him to go. In Jonah chapter 4, in verse 2, we have the Assyrians given the message, the very small message, 40 days and you'll be overthrown, and they repent, believe it or not. God sees their repentance, sees their sorrow, and changes his mind about destroying Nineveh, the great city of the Assyrians. And Jonah gets perturbed. <laughs> I was trying to think of a nice word to use. Gets a little upset. Throws a hissy fit. Those are all appropriate, right? Chapter 4, verse 2. So I prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord, was this not what I said when I was still in my country? And therefore I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger, and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm or, or disaster. What a weird thing to be upset about. Lord, didn't I tell you I knew that you were slow to anger and you're merciful? And he's mad about that. He's upset that God showed someone mercy. Let's go in our Bibles to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians, chapter 2, verse 4. We're finally in Ephesians, Betty. Can you believe it? You're welcome. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 4, Paul writes these words. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses or sins, he made us alive together with Christ. And here's the key. By grace, you have been saved. Jonah was angry that destruction didn't come upon the Ninevites. He was angry that God was so full of mercy that he forgave them their great sins. Praise be to God that he is so rich in mercy because we are all in the same boat when it comes to our sins. We all had the same problem. As humans in this fallen world, we were guilty of trespass or sin. But God had mercy on us. And because he's so great and rich with that mercy, he can forgive any trespass that we commit by the blood of of Jesus the Lamb. Let's go to Matthew chapter 20 together. This is not on the slides. I couldn't make the font big enough for you to actually read without a magnifying glass. Let's just turn there. Matthew chapter 20. Beginning in verse 1. Jesus here gives us a parable, gives us a story with a spiritual application about what it's like to be in the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And 
if we mean the church, that could mean one thing, one perspective on this parable. But if we mean the eternal realm of heaven, that kingdom, it has a different perspective as well. So keep both in mind while we're reading. Beginning in verse 1, Because the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers a denarius a day, he sent them into the vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said to them, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. He said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. So again, stage for us, what we're looking at here. We've got a master over some property. He owns a vineyard. He wants laborers or workers to work in the vineyard. He goes and finds some people, and they start at the beginning of the day. And every three hours, like clockwork, he goes and hires more and more workers to work in the vineyard. And the deal was, I will pay you what is right. Now what he means is, I will pay you whatever I want. And so one might think if you only worked for an hour, you'd receive less than the person who'd been working all day long. That's what seems just from our perspective. Let's keep reading. Verse 9. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, verse 12, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. And then verse 13, the voice of God, he replied to one of them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? Verse 16, here's Jesus speaking again. So, the last will be first, and the first last. I'm glad this parable is here, even though I'm not quite sure what to do with it in this life. (laughs) I think I know what it means, and I really want to say that I won't think these thoughts when the judgment day comes. I hope I don't, but I might. (laughs) How long have you been a Christian, Ted? So, five, six years? (laughs) A couple decades? Is that safe? 
Dave? I don't know, 50 some years. 50 some years. Doug? 50 some years. Colin? How long have you been a Christian? A little over a year. Which one of them gets the better portion of heaven? 50 some years? A couple decades? Or a year? Heavens, heavens, folks. I mean, if I get in by the skin of my teeth, I'll be as happy as a person who's worked in the kingdom his whole life. I obeyed the gospel when I was 15 years old. And I'm an old man now. I'm 34. <laughs> I used to be a part of the youth group, and now I've aged out of that. What happened? I think the point of this parable is to show us we're all in the same boat. None of us deserve to get to be with God for eternity. We're all fallen, sinful people. Because that debt was paid by Jesus, we get the access to mercy and to grace that Jonah was so upset that God had for the Ninevites. He's given us that mercy and that grace. For I know that you're so abundant in mercy, Jonah says, and we say amen. The final passage for us this morning is in 2 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. I say beginning in 12, I just mean 12. In 2 Timothy, the scope of what Paul has to say to the young preacher Timothy, young being 35-ish, <laughs> I say is a little bit different. If you knew that you were going to be leaving this life and going on to your reward, and you had one more chance to write a letter to one of your best friends, what would you say in it? I have no idea what I'd say. I hope I'd be like Paul, <laughs> talk about how you need to fight the good fight. I'm going on to my reward. Keep doing what you're doing, but I don't know. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, right in the middle of this context, he says, this is the reason I suffer these things. Nevertheless, I'm not ashamed, because I know whom I have believed. And I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Now, I've got a thing called a Roth IRA. Have you heard of that before? Hopefully you have. A Roth IRA is me putting aside some money for the future that may not be given to me, but hopefully I, I will attain that age at one point in my life. You're putting aside a certain amount of money, literal money, aside from a paycheck or from a gift, into an account and it's being traded whether you want it to or not and hopefully you're making a return on your investment and then eventually I hear a day comes where you're allowed to access that money and you can use that money to I guess live is that what a Roth IRA is something kind of like that I haven't got it all figured out but I, I'm told it's a real thing I don't have a whole lot of confidence when it comes to our government, 
when it comes to the stock market, when it comes to literally anybody in this life, when they promise me a return on my investment. I'm sure it's been known to happen. I'm sure you might be living off that right now, and good for you. But Paul is saying, this is why I'm suffering the way that I am, and I'm happy too. I'm going to rejoice in my sufferings because I know who I'm giving my investments. It's not the government. It's not the stock market. It's not anybody on this earth. I know that if I entrust my investments of a spiritual nature in God, he's going to give me a return on that investment. I'm laying up my treasures, not here on earth, where it's destroyed. I'm laying up my treasures in heaven. Because where my heart is, or where my treasures are, my heart is also. Paul is saying here is, I know who I believe in. I know who I trust. And I am convinced he is able to hold on to that investment until the future. Let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 4. You might wonder to yourself, well, why does Paul talk about that kind of stuff here in 2 Timothy? Well, I'll tell you why. 2 Timothy 4, verse, I guess, 1 and 2 and 3 were like the motto of my preaching school. To show us that preaching the word in season and out of season is the role that we are called to perform within the body of Christ. But beginning here in verse 6, here is why Paul was in that mind frame. Because, verse 6, I am already being poured out as a drink offering. Don't miss the imagery here. It's beautiful, but also deeply disturbing. A drink offering or a wine offering for the Hebrews was a type of sacrifice that you would make before the altar. You would take the first fruits of wine produced from the vineyard that God blessed you with that year. You take that red wine and you would pour it out on the altar of God as appreciation for giving him the first fruits of blessing your vineyard that year. Paul says, I'm already being poured out as a wine offering. I've already shed my blood, is what he's saying. The time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, past tense. I have finished the race, past tense. I have kept the faith, past tense. Henceforth, verse 8, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also all who have loved his appearing. Paul says, I know who I believed in. And I'm convinced he's able to keep that which I've committed unto him until that day. Why? That day is here, Paul says. My life is over. I finished that race. I have fought the good fight. And I'm ready for that reward. I pray that I'm that Pauline in my mindset when my life is about to be over. 
that I can say, you know what? I've given everything I can, and I'm ready to go home. Look back into our text this morning. For I know. I know that my Redeemer lives. I know the Lord has thoughts of peace for me. I know that he is full of grace and mercy, and I know who I believe in. It's the God of heaven and earth. That's just one example of a little phrase that might pop up to you when you're reading a little bit slower than you normally do. When you see those little phrases, allow it to be a journey for you to go on. Hopefully we've gone on a simple yet satisfying journey this morning through the word of God. If anyone has a need to respond to the invitation of the Lord, the opportunity is yours to examine where you are in light of those things. Do you know all of those things are true in your life? Or is there a doubt that you want to have put aside, wished away this morning? If you have a need to respond to the Lord's invitation, you can come forward. We can talk about your issue and pray for you, encourage you. Or if it's a more delicate matter, our shepherds are at the door awaiting your needs. If you have a need, please respond as we stand and we sing.